How does death color an artist's music? An artist, in essence, loses all of their potential after death, which cements their legacy in music history, if they're important enough. This allows a complete critical analysis of their work, since there is indeed a definitive ending to their work. In certain cases, death also colors the intentionality of what an artist put into their music, especially if their death was colored by self-destruction. Today, in this series, we'll be covering a group of musicians known as the 27 Club. Artists who died at 27 and were well-known enough to be covered in the media. In each episode, we'll cover a different artist and how their death colored how their music was perceived in music history. So it should be stated that the 27 Club as a group didn't actually start until the early 1970s. This was when Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Jimi Hendrix all died at the age of 27 within a two-year period. Rock journalism at that point was at uh, one of its peaks. Um, Rolling Stone was in full swing. The myth-making of rock was all there. Rock was certainly one of the most popular genres in America at the time and in the UK. And... Rock journalists felt that they needed to heighten the myth of rock music because it was all about the entertainment and the sales, um, which is why the club was created. It was one of those things where just sharing the myth of these artists and lifting them up, making them transcend their original humble roots was important to the people, especially to the people who enjoyed their music. The first member that we're going to be talking about lived well before this time of rock journalism. He was a blues musician. And his name is Robert Johnson. And his story is essentially a story of the distance between blues, a carnal music, and spirituality. And about how hard it was for black musicians to thrive in the racist South. Robert was born in 1911 to Julia Dodds and Noah Johnson. Uh, The man to which Julia lent her name was Charles Dodds, who was a landowner in Mississippi. However, a dispute with white landowners caused her and her husband and Robert to flee Mississippi when Robert was just two years old. Eventually, Robert was sent to live with his father uh, up until age eight when he reunited with his mother, where they lived on a plantation in the Mississippi Delta. Robert seemed to have received some education, some level of education throughout his life, although it's unclear how much he received um, because the details are scarce. We know that Robert took his father's changed name, Charles changed his name to Charles Spencer to throw off the lynch mob. And Robert changed his name to Robert Spencer in the 1920 census, uh, where he would have been nine at the time. His parents also changed their last names to Willis shortly afterward. Um, Robert finally changed his last name back to Johnson uh, after his birth father. Um, When he was married in 1929, and the signature on his marriage certificate indicates that he received enough of a schooling to provide a signature on that certificate. So if you don't know who Robert Johnson is or why he's important to rock as a genre, essentially Johnson was, in layman's terms, a godfather and purveyor of a style of blues called Delta Blues. It comes from the Mississippi Delta. Now, blues was an extraordinarily popular genre of music at the time, and a lot of blues is very homogenous, at least in feel. Um, usually there is something known as a blues riff, um, just a two-chord structure, essentially. Um, a lot of repetition, a lot of similar emotional content. Um, what separates Delta blues from a lot of other blues genres at the time 
uh, is the instrumentation and the style of playing. A lot of Delta Blues musicians will play with slide guitar, uh, specifically a bottleneck guitar style. And they'll also accompany their music with harmonica and a certain vocal styling. There were a lot of players named Sun House, uh, Ike Zimmerman. These were guys that were practicing um, nascent Delta Blues at the time. And these men will come into Robert Johnson's life as he is learning how to be a blues musician. But when he was married in 1929, he married this woman named Virginia Travis, although technically let's call her more of a girl because he was around 17 and she was around 16. Um, tragically, he was set to have a child with Virginia Travis at that time, but she died in childbirth shortly after they got married. Um, so without his love and without his child, um, he fell into despair, as many people would at the time. Uh, another thing about Robert Johnson that is important to know is that uh, as many blues and uh, musicians that were very skilled at their instruments had back then, there was a legend associated with him. If you've ever listened to the song The Devil Goes Down to Georgia, um, which has been played by countless bluesgrass, bluesgrass, bluegrass bands, um, and was remastered uh, for rock genres, metal genres. Um, it's a well-known song. And the song itself is about Robert Johnson, according to the legend, and this is lifted from just Wikipedia. As a young man living on a plantation in rural Mississippi, Johnson had a tremendous desire to become a great blues musician. He was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad near Dockery Plantation at midnight. There he was met by a large black man, here in the legend, that's the devil, who took the guitar and tuned it. The devil played a few songs and then returned the guitar to Johnson, giving him mastery of the instrument. This was a deal with the devil mirroring the legend of Faust. In exchange for his soul, Johnson was able to create the blues for which he became famous. Now, you might notice there's something that doesn't ring right with this legend, and uh, part of it is that it is quite clearly racist, the fact that the devil himself is a large black man, um, the fact that no one could actually believe that Robert was skilled enough to play the guitar. Perhaps he wasn't intelligent enough to a lot of people's standards, so they had to come up with a legend for it. Um, so the legend is ridiculous, but it was carried out by a lot of blues musicians, specifically Robert himself. He actually took the legend and he ran with it. And back then it sort of makes sense. There wasn't really a lot of ways to escape the kind of racism that was still present in the South post the Civil War. And if it was able to further your career, you know, I bet he could see the advantage in it and sort of play off the fact that it maybe wasn't terribly flattering to his own motivation and his own skills as a musician. Now, the reason why this legend came about links back to the tragic death of his wife and his child in childbirth. Um, a lot of friends of his, knowing that he was a burgeoning blues musician, and it should be stated that people, know, people knew back then that he was practicing harmonica, he was playing mouth harp, he was trying out the guitar, not great at it, but they knew that he had ambitions as a blues musician. Um, but the problem with playing blues, especially with um, black citizens playing blues, is that blues itself back then was a style of music that was directly diametrically opposed to spiritual music at the time. Blues concerns itself with carnality, with issues that are very human so <clears throat> issues with the opposite sex you know uh, issues with drinking you know it's it's a style of music that is meant to evoke an a catharsis you know, a way to alleviate the problems that are happening with your life um, 
But people tended to find salvation in it, or at least people who practiced spiritual music felt that people who played blues music were not looking to a higher power, specifically the Christian God, uh, for their salvation, instead finding their power in this music. Um, there are many other reasons why people were hostile to blues musicians and to blues in general. But when people, Robert's friends, his uh, acquaintances, the people that he lived around, knew and witnessed uh, the death of his wife and child, they chalked it up to a divine punishment for practicing blues. And that's sort of where the legend itself started. They must have figured that he sold his soul to the devil in order to become a blues musician. Um, to me, this feels fundamentally wrong because as Sunhouse and Ike Zimmerman, who met Robert Johnson later, shortly after in life, um, as they have accounted for when they met him at age 18, he actually wasn't that good at playing music. Um, he did indeed gain a vast amount of skill very shortly after that happened. Like, so much skill that was sort of surprising uh, to a lot of people at the time, especially considering that style of blues was very new, very nascent at the time, and no one had seen someone play the guitar that Johnson would be able to play uh, mere months after he started playing guitar. Um, so this name, Sunhouse, keeps coming up, and this man is actually extremely important to Robert's legacy, because Sunhouse was the person that introduced Johnson to the style of blues playing that would formally and then be known as Delta Blues. Um, so this man, Sunhouse, he was previously a preacher and a religious singer, and uh, because of this, as we mentioned, he despised blues based on its secularity. He worked on his father's farm, but hated farm work, left his marriage and all of that farm work to become a paid preacher because he grew up in a religious family and he knew that's how he could make money. Unfortunately for him, as for a lot of people back then, his behaviors conflicted with his church work. He was a purveyor of women, he was a purveyor of alcohol, um, and it was tough for him to stay religious when his vices were continued to keep taking hold of him. So at the age of 25, uh, Sunhouse heard for the first time somebody playing the bottleneck guitar style was immediately entranced, and that's when he started playing blues. And just like Johnson, he learned the blues extraordinarily fast. Just within a few weeks, he was able to develop his own style, and with that, he was able to start playing joints around several different cities uh, in the country, specifically Helena, Arkansas, Memphis, Tennessee, um, a whole bunch of places in Mississippi, um, where that kind of style was uh, very popular. Uh, Sunhouse, it is also known that he received two years in a penitentiary, and uh, the reason why this happened is because one day he was playing a juke joint. A man came in and started shooting up the crowd, including Sunhouse, the performer. He ended up wounding House in his leg, and House retaliated with his own gun, shooting the man dead. He was sentenced to 15 years in the penitentiary, uh, but was released uh, on bail and went into virtual exile. Uh, where he went to Mississippi and happened upon another Delta Blues star, where Bill's Blues were burgeoning, uh, called Charlie Patton. The two exiles started playing together, along with a man named Willie Brown, and Sunhouse's star was born. After Sunhouse moved to Robinsonville, where Willie lived, that's where he met Robert Johnson. And from there, this was where Robert started to pick up the blues. He learned from Sunhouse, but he also learned from this man named Ike Zimmerman. And Ike Zimmerman's presence is also very important to Johnson's legacy because purportedly, if you put any credence to the legend of Robert Johnson, this is where the large black man in the legend 
um, seems to come from. Because Ike Zimmerman's legend himself was that he learned his guitar playing from playing in graveyards at midnight and absorbing the spiritual energy. According to eyewitness accounts and testimonies about the times back then, Ike would apparently take Robert to graveyards. They may not have been graveyards, but certainly they would go out at night and he would teach Johnson how to play guitar. So this sort of factored as well into the legend. So we've got Sun, we've got Ike, we also have a bunch of players at the time who were also practicing the style of blues that Johnson would become well known for. Um, so at that point, Robert thought he would try his hand in marriage again. Uh, he married another woman uh, in 1931. Her name was Coletta Kraft. Uh, they decided to have a child. She was with child. And unfortunately for him, she died again in childbirth. So two wives, two children. At this point, we can all assume Robert just sort of said, fuck it. I'm going to become just a blues player and I'm going to just do my own thing because apparently I can't be happy. Uh, so Robert started playing around Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, all of these different places that Delta Blues were well known for. At the time, also using several different surnames, possibly because of his association with Charles Spencer. And also because just back then it was so hard to be a black musician, no matter what style of music you were playing because of the intense prejudice back then. So changing your name meant that you were less likely... Uh, for your own actions to come back around and swing at you. Especially because Robert at that time, according to several people who were there giving their own testimonies, uh, he was a purveyor of whiskey and women. Those were his vices. Um, and that can get you into a lot of trouble if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's sort of why Johnson's past is so hard to track. There's a lack of records, especially during the Great Depression, and plus all of those surnames. A lot of eyewitness accounts... Uh, state that overall he was essentially an introvert with extroverted tendencies. He came off very polite, very outgoing, but when people were playing with him on stage, um, playing the popular songs at the time, he would just sort of go off and do his own thing and he would disappear for about two or three weeks and no one really know where he was. So on the whole, very hard to track down person. Um, importantly with Johnson, this is why he's well known later in life, he wrote his own blues songs and usually focused on darker, complex subjects. This will come up in a second set of recordings that he recorded uh, in Dallas uh, a year before his death. However, live, Johnson would mostly stick to whatever was popular at the time. So a lot of popular blues songs, uh, these are songs that would also be covered on his first recording session, um, which would again be mostly his own compositions. Um, one such man that comes up in Johnson's past is this man named Johnny Shines, who became a very close friend of his. Shines describes Robert as mysterious, kind of like a specter traveling wherever, having his own agenda. Um, there are many stories of the women he would uh, try to bed. Um, apparently, Robert would have a very short relationship with a woman named Estella Coleman, who was the mother of a man named Robert Lockwood Jr., who was one of the only men who would be able to learn guitar from Robert before Robert died. So Johnson only recorded two music sessions in his entire lifetime, and uh, they are collected in a uh, compilation called uh, The Complete Collections. Um, you can look it up on YouTube, actually. Uh, they're also on streaming services. It's 29 tracks, most of which, I would say half of which, are original compositions, and the rest are um, two, sometimes three alternate takes. Uh, and that encompasses the entirety of Robert's recorded discography. 
The two recording sessions um, took place within a year or two. The first was recorded in uh, room 414 of the Gunter Hotel in San Antonio, Texas, recorded by a man named Don Law. Um, and if you listen to these tracks, and you absolutely should, because it's some of the most elemental physical blues playing at the time. The recording obviously isn't terribly clean. It's back then, you know, the money was kind of scarce, and recording technologies back then were also uh, very haphazard, um, very rough. Um, but Rod's, Robert was able to get a specific sound out of his guitar uh, by playing in the corner of the room. He called this corner loading, and uh, apparently he was taught this by other blues musicians who had recorded their own songs at the time. Um, there were more rumors that circulated that the reason why he played in the corner was because of his shyness, but I feel it had more to do with the sound that he wanted to get out of his guitar, the thoughtfulness that was put into those recordings. Um, so half of the songs on the Complete Collection, and I'll put the link in the description of this podcast, um, the first half of the songs, um, these are all sort of focused on more upbeat, uh, more pop-focused songs. Of these, you should check out these tracks. The first is Kind-Hearted Woman Blues, and this is the clearest sign that Robert was doing something special with his compositions. It's one of the most complex of his tracks. Um, what I would do is I would listen to the shifts in his chords and the words. Um, the chords themselves are very complexly arranged. It's not necessarily just a go to a chord and then go to another chord uh, on the, the third part of the verse as a traditional blues song. Um, it's a really awesome mix of different types of styles, different phrasings, and it's very compelling. Uh, on top of that, the words of the song, the lyrics, are extremely interesting because for a blues song, most people would construct blues music back then with a lot of unrelated verses that more captured feel and emotion than a cohesive story. But Robert actually chose to make a cohesive story for this particular song. Um, so you can listen to the whole thing and it tells a story, which, you know, people take it for granted considering that the music is almost 90 years old today, but back then it was something completely new and uh, no one had ever seen it before. Other songs from this particular part of the recordings that you should listen to are Terrapane Blues. Um, this one is fast-paced, also extremely elemental, and one of the only songs Johnson would hear before he died. Really compelling listen. The other one is the very first song in the collection, I'll Believe I'll Dust My Broom. Um... People back then, and a lot of people that were influenced by Johnson's music were actually rock musicians from the UK, noticed that this boogie bass line um, that he was playing, that he, that he played in the song, never really was fashioned before, especially on guitar. It felt essentially like a piano line retrofitted to guitar, and that was extremely new. So you can already see how Johnson was starting to innovate um, blues playing and rock playing at the time. So he completed his first recording, and then he created a second recording uh, a few months later at a makeshift studio at the Vitagraph building in Dallas, Texas. This was also recorded by Don Law, which makes the complete collection uh, very cohesive because it's the same engineer. During this recording session, this is where he started to focus more on somber, introspective songs. Um, as we mentioned, he did two or three takes of each song, and so a, unlike a lot of released music at the time, this allows comparisons between different performances, which if you're a blues nerd, you know, it's really important. Uh, these actually collect some of his most famous songs, the ones that are more well-known in the rock canon nowadays. Um, of these tracks, the ones I would check out, he has a track called Stop Breaking Down. 
And uh, this particular song is extremely effective because it bears a certain indignance. It's very charismatic. Um, when Brian Jones showed Robert Johnson's music to Keith Richards back when they were doing the Rolling Stones, uh, when they were in their prime, they covered a few of Johnson's songs, and they covered this particular song uh, for their album Exile on Main Street, um, near the end of the album. And also the White Stripes famously covered this song on their first album, their self-titled album, um, and that's also a fantastic rendition. And then out started with this particular song that was recorded here. Uh, he also recorded an amazing mixture of blues and ragtime. Um, again, also a really fascinating, um, well-done pairing called Their Red Hot, which was later covered by the Red Hot Chili Peppers as the closing track off of their 1991 album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. It's jaunty, it plays against the rhythm, like I mentioned, it brilliantly incorporates ragtime into blues. It's just a really wonderful track, and uh, you can really see what people saw in Johnson's music, especially the people who would later cause him to have his legacy be well-known in the rock canon. Importantly for his music, Johnson's voice is also almost as vital as his playing. Um, Vocal-wise, um, Johnson practiced microtonality, which allowed subtle pitch shifts that helps the emotional conveyance of his music. Also, what a lot of people remarked on when they heard his music for the first time was that his guitar playing, as deft and as fluid as it was, essentially was another voice. Um, a lot of people would remark, thinking that they would be wondering who was playing the guitar as Johnson was singing, and as they found out, it was him alone. He was singing and playing at the same time. And that was just a skill that not a lot of people had nailed down, especially when you consider how well he was playing the guitar. Um, so it was astounding for future rock musicians, inspired them in that way. That was another way that Johnson helped influence a lot of people uh, decades down the line. So we get to the end of Johnson's playing. He's playing around. He's an itinerant blues musician. Um, he's getting just a little bit more well-known, but not really considering his spectral nature, the fact that he would be drifting around, um, uh, hitting up women, drinking, just living life like a, like a blues musician, essentially. You know. And now we're going to get into why he was inducted into the 27 Club. So he had just turned 27 at this point. Cause of death? Unknown. And this uh, is perfectly salient with everything else that we know about Robert Johnson, or rather the fact that we don't know anything specific about Robert Johnson. Um, his death certificate was found 30 years later, although the cause is still unknown. They did do an autopsy on the body um, and speculated that because there were traces of congenital syphilis, that may have contributed to his death. However, there is a story that uh, made the rounds. This was carried out by a blues musician named Sonny Boy Williamson, um, who just before Robert Johnson had died, and this is the story that he presents, um, Johnson was flirting with a married woman at a dance, as he did, as he would usually do. However, the, the husband of the woman was there at the party, saw Robert Johnson flirting with his woman, and decided to get revenge, however extreme it was. Johnson was offered a bottle of whiskey that was purportedly poisoned by the woman's husband, Williamson, who was with Johnson at the time, knocked the bottle away and warned Johnson never take an unopened bottle of whiskey. Johnson retorted, don't ever knock a bottle out of my hand again. And then he accepted another bottle from the man. Um, the next evening, we're talking about the day after that party, um, Robert started to experience pain. Um, he couldn't get out of bed. Uh, his condition worsened over the next two or three days, and uh, he died convulsing in severe pain. Uh, 
So back then, this would lead people to believe that he had been poisoned. However, using what we know now about medical science and about certain poisons that were popular at the time, it's actually likely that this didn't happen. Um, the poison that was assumed to have been in the bottle was strychnine, uh, because strychnine was a very popular poisoning agent at the time. However, strychnine takes a few hours for it to hit the body, and Johnson died over a few days. On top of that, strychnine is not odorless or tasteless. It is absolutely detectable in whatever it is you're drinking. Um, and assuming Robert was at least not drunk enough to be able to tell what he was drinking, he would have been able to know that there was strychnine in the whiskey he was drinking, and he would have spit it out. So poisoning is actually less likely. Um, it's possible that Robert just caught a freak disease and died within a few days. Um, again, we knew he had syphilis at the time, so syphilis may have absolutely contributed to his death because it was a killer if it wasn't caught early on. And we also know his um, promiscuous ways. So, But the long and the short of it is that we'll never clearly know because Robert Johnson has always been a mysterious figure in that community. So you may be asking yourself, well, Robert Johnson wasn't an especially famous blues player. Um, he didn't have a lot to his name. He died in a pauper's grave. How exactly did his music start to become well-known in the rock canon? Well, this is thanks to a man named John Henry Hammond II, um, who was an American record producer. He was a civil rights activist. Essentially, he was a glorified talent scout. And this man, if you haven't heard his name, uh, was extremely influential and instrumental in sparking the careers of so many different people in music history. We're talking people like Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Aretha Franklin, George Benson, Stevie Ray Vaughan, all the way into the 80s, Billie Holiday. Um, this was a guy who lent his talents to help not only get a lot of talented musicians the credibility and credence they deserved, but as a civil rights activist, he was able to help bridge the gap between black music and the dissonance between prejudice and uh, the music industry at the time in America. Um, he's, an ex he's an essential person to the development of the American rock canon. Um, and John Hammond was the man that had discovered Robert's music. Um, apparently what had happened was um, he figured out about Robert Johnson's music and he offered to put him on a bill on a big blues festival. Shortly afterward, he learned that Robert Johnson had died and so he replaced him with another musician but went out of his way to search for any recordings that Robert Johnson might have performed. Um, knowing that he only had 29 tracks to go on to, he was the man that started to help spread the word about Johnson's music. And it was John Hammond that helped introduce Robert Johnson's music to people like Bob Dylan, um, the Rolling Stones, people who were within John Hammond's sphere of influence. Um, specifically, people in the UK, rock musicians in the UK, um, were influenced by Johnson's music. And this was based on a compilation released in 1961 called The King of the Delta Blues Singers. Um, there are some remarkable things about this compilation, um, but the most remarkable, and that's maybe a bad term, was that the liner notes are incredibly inaccurate. They actually screw up a lot of details about Robert's real life that were uh, corrected um, later down the road when records became more accurate. According to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Robert had four songs that shaped the genre. Sweet Home Chicago, Crossroad Blues, Hellhound on My Trail, and Love in Vain, which were all recorded in his sessions between 1936 and 1937. These are both 
Really awesome songs to check out. The list of musicians that claim to have been influenced by Johnson include Brian Jones and Keith Richards, as we mentioned. Um, they've covered a bunch of his songs. Uh, Alexis Corner, um, who may not be known in America, but in the UK is noted as the godfather of British blues. He released a song titled Robert Johnson, essentially lending um, and showing his influence on his music. Uh, Eric Clapton, the famous guitarist and member of Cream, called Johnson the most important blues musician who ever lived. Also, in an interview, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant, said, essentially, we all owe ourselves to Robert Johnson. And Led Zeppelin recorded Traveling Riverside Blues in his honor. And then the list goes on. People like Rush, people like Slipknot, Jimi Hendrix, a lot of guitarists that were aiming to change how guitar music was thought about and how it was played and how it gets rehearsed. Um, all claimed Johnson as an influence, and that sort of cemented his legacy. And it was essentially all because of John Hammond. And, of course, his own playing. So what can we learn from Johnson's death uh, and from his induction in the 27 Club? Well, a continuing motif for this particular group of people is that 27, maybe in 1938, it wasn't terribly young. But 27 is still a very youthful time to die, you know? When you die at 27, it just screams wasted potential especially if you're a musician that's just coming up in the world that still feels like they've got a lot of stuff to give to the music world. And so it's a way of sort of romanticizing young death and wasted potential. Young death has been romanticized since the literary canon has been available. And this is just sort of another way of honoring that. Um, for Johnson in particular, it is indeed a testament to how bad things were back then for black musicians and how things have sort of changed nowadays. Uh, it's also a testament to how the general idea of blues music has changed. I mean, back then, again, it was sort of taboo among the spiritual community, but people like Reverend Franklin, a lot of celebrity pastors, have changed the opinion of that. And then when a lot of blues, blues musicians in the late 60s, early 70s started mixing the two genres, that's when the attitude started to change. So it's, it is sort of a testament to where we were in America and where blues music was back then and how different things are now. So that's Robert Johnson's music. Um, I would absolutely check it out. Um, I'll put the link to the YouTube video in the description. It's fascinating stuff, well worth your time, especially if you're a fan of any type of blues music in general. And thanks so much for listening. Uh, check us out at tapedeckpodcast.com. This podcast comes out every Friday, and we've got album reviews on the website. We cover a lot of local music, stuff that I don't think you might ever be able to find in your lifetime, and then some stuff that uh, is more well-known. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the second member of the 27 Club, a member who, as we've mentioned, was indeed influenced by Robert Johnson, but has his own tragic history, the legendary Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones. Make sure to stay tuned for that next week. I'm Rob Mora, and thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.